So, Bismillah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah. Wa salatu wassalamu ala Rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa manu la. Wa musalli wa sallam wa zil barik ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. So, we started talking about last week, Nana Asma'u. Nana Asma'u. We're using this book and we started talking about her. The book is called One Woman's Jihad by Beverly Mack and Jean Boyd. Mm-hmm. Nana Asma'u lived from 1793 to 1864 1793 to 1864 and she lived in West Africa Nigeria area um, I had said last time by way of reference that slavery was uh, in uh, somehow connected to West Africa, so she's in that region. Like she's in a, a region where there's a lot of things that are going on during her lifetime, let alone the work that she was doing with her father and with her community and so on. So we had talked about how she was the <coughs> uh, one of the children. She's the daughter of Sheikh Nasman Shah Danfodio, Othman Danfodio, and we talked kind of like about her upbringing the background of her family and so on and so forth. Um, she she came from a family, as we mentioned last time, that was like 10 or 12 generations deep in a particular village area. And all of the people in that community were people of knowledge and learning and so on. That was like their little their little thing. And her father, and when he would go make da'wah to these other villages and along the areas of, of the in, in West Africa, he would come back there. So he'd be making, you know, teaching people, inviting people to Islam and so on, but he still comes back there. That's kind of like their center. And eventually they have the caliphate, they have the Sokoto Caliphate. And uh, he's the head of it, and she's one of the main figures in it as well, as his daughter, and as um, also the wife of basically like the wazir, the main advisor to the Khalifa. And then when her father passes away, her brother becomes a Khalifa. So, you know, the whole family was involved in running this community. Um, so we had left off <coughs> on uh, one of the things that we left off on was this section on women's organizations and women's healing. So one of the topics that comes up that's interesting is that the people in this area, this province that they were in, uh, they were used to being ch- governed by a chief and by the chief's sister. The chief sister had a title, you know, in they say Inna, I-N-N-A. And I, I might be mispronouncing words. I'm not a specialist in this region by any means. I'm just sharing some interesting information we found. So the people, but the interesting thing is that the people were used to being governed like that. They were used to being governed by a chief and the chief sister. So like male and female leadership was common. In, in their understanding of the way that things run. And that was fine because that's kind of like the way that she's going to run things with her family too. The only issue they were coming across was that the woman who's in charge, she also, and by rank of her position, she is the head of kind of like this religious healing cult of the local religion, right? So like, you know, that's the woman's position. So they're and they're realizing like, okay, these people are new converts. They're coming in, or they were very distant from the teachings of Islam, even if they were Muslims nominally. 
and now they're coming into like some sort of commitment and they're trying to build this community and build this society and so on and you have this they have these really strong women's networks that are run by this woman who of power who oversees their like ecstatic kind of like religious healing type practices right so they're like what do we do so this is one of the questions that comes up you know and what's interesting about that and why I'm mentioning it is that this is a matter of like we've talked about before this issue of Islam and the cultural imperative Dr. Omar Farooq Abdullah's paper and how Islam is not supposed to be culturally predatorial uh, obviously we do have teachings like we have things that we believe come from divine revelation and that, that has to be respected and acknowledged and that is not overrun by a particular cultural practice in some place but if there isn't any sort of religious teaching that goes against a cultural practice or then you leave it and that's actually the sunnah that to to leave culture in place unless needed is the sunnah of the prophet so you know maybe people wear like certain types of hats maybe they speak a certain language maybe they dress in a certain way you don't really change those things uh, even like the headgear that she started to use for her and like her students and stuff was very similar to the headgear that these women would wear when they were in charge of these circles. So like they're using a similar kind of symbol, right? But in a different way, if they can, if, if they can do that. Um, so what they ended up, what the, all of this is leading to is that they recognize that like these people, they provide some sort of healing presence for their community. And she has to lead these women now because she's in the position that she's in and they have to like fill this role somehow you know it's it's not like you can't just now you have a case of this you know outside of cultural practice that are acceptable this is now a case of a religious and cultural practice that's not acceptable so you're gonna have to tell these people okay this kind of like shamanism and stuff that you're doing this is not gonna fly we have you know it's not the way that we do things in islam and so on but then you can't just do that and not give people an alternative and that's that's one of the I think interesting things that happens here, um, and that comes up in Islamic law in general. That you have to, if you're going to take something away, you try to give some sort of alternative, give them something else to do, some some other way to do that, right? So what she did, the example of this is that she wrote one of her poems is on the medicine of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, Tibn Nabwi, the medicine of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and um, she basically wrote it so that these women who she's training, they can use this kind of like as their healing. So the, it's a work on how the Prophet used different foods, different things, different du'as that he made in different cases, different verses that are recited. You know, all this kind of stuff that you can use in that way. When someone feels down, tell them to do this. When someone feels this, give them that. How they use different foods, whatever it is. So she writes a work that... Um <coughs> is meant to provide that uh, it's kind of like replaces that in a sense right it gives them something else that they can use and she wrote in the beginning of it that it was composed in the fortress of my sheikh the one called Bellu, my bosom friend my brother it's her brother right Muhammad Bellu is her brother the, who became the Khalifa by which she meant it was written with his knowledge and consent so this is kind of like her at the same time saying like this is a this is a, a sanctioned thing you know like this is we're doing this on purpose as part of the process of community building and taking the people in a particular direction, he's the one who asked me to do this, and then he's going to uh, work on that, right? Uh, and he himself actually also did a work like that. Um, 
It says Bello himself was the most important writer on medicine in Hausaland and was the author of ten works on different aspects of healing, including treatises on medici medicinal herbs and minerals, piles and eye diseases, and his own work on metaphysical medicine, which he wrote after the visit of a scholar from Egypt. Uh, so they 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 were moving in the same direction. And again, that's like a theme that comes up, is that they were all brought up together, they were raised together, they had similar outlooks, so on and so forth. And when they go into the position now of community building. They're moving in the same direction in their community building efforts because that's that's how their foundation was laid, right? Um, mm, is that a worthwhile tangent? Perhaps it is. Uh, that's why one of the reasons that uh, you know we I don't say that's why, but one of the things that we often say here to people is that if you want to get involved with the majlis and so on and so forth. It's open door policy. But the best way for you to get involved is to start attending. That's step number one. If you regularly attend and you find some sort of benefit in that, that's step number one. Step number two, we can start to talk after that. Then step number two is you get to wash dishes and like vacuum the carpet and stuff like that. And then step number three, we didn't really get there yet. We're still in like <laughs> attend and wash dishes. But uh, the, the point is like if we're going to actually build a community from the ground up, then everyone has to be on the same page, or at least in a similar direction. And oftentimes what happens in community spaces is like every, every so often random people come in and they insert themselves and they have their own agenda and they have their own thing going on and they have their own, like, of course, shura is welcome, conversation is welcome, we make decisions together, so on and so forth. But there is like a foundation to it, it's not just to up and, up and you know, do whatever you feel like at any given time. Um, so they, they had this foundation, they were working together. Nevertheless, the new system of government established at Sokoto required every person, great or small, to know his or, own his or her own place and acknowledge certain duties that were owed to the state. So this is kind of like continuing on how she's writing this work as part of a greater plan to develop the people. And it's going to serve that purpose of being a, a, a means of healing for them. So uh, the next section is on construction of community. It kind of continues what uh, was already said. Um, she wrote a work in this regard that is, is called Be Sure of God's Truth. Be Sure of God's Truth. And basically what it does is like it lays out responsibilities and things to consider for like all the various different levels of the community. And give them kind of like warnings. And then the refrain is, this is God's truth. This is God's truth. Be sure of God's truth. And that's the way kind of like the poem was written. Uh, she translated, and, and that's, um, that was her translation of her father's main work on how, to, how the community should run. So her father actually wrote a work on that, who, the one who ran the community. This whole area actually is, it's not... Um, <laughs> as far as we know, there's no like black mold or anything there, you know, inshallah, it'll be okay. Because then what happens, everyone keeps pushing into the entryway. But, uh, you know, if, if you feel comfortable, no pressure, do whatever. I'm not telling women what to do. <laughs> do whatever you feel comfortable to do. And, ahna uh, wa So she, what happened was he wrote the original one. Um, which was in Fulfulde, which is the language of the Fulani people in that area. And w the one thing that comes up in the book is it seems like Fulani was kind of like 
the language that they were using was more for educated people, for literary people and so on. And the Hausa was more like the general population's language. So he wrote that one in Funfulde, and then later on uh, she wrote her translation of his work into Hausa. So she took his work and repurposed it into the language that more people understand and put that out. And that's kind of like telling the obligations of everybody in the community, how everyone should act and so on. So it says, for example, um, let everyone consider and reflect. I will give you good advice. Be respected. Let us continue to follow the path and escape retribution. Listen to my song and repent. And so find salvation. Be sure of God's truth. Whether a man has high position, whether he is a ruler or a poor man, whether he is powerful and miserly, mi and miserly or powerful and generous, whoever fails to revere the caliph will die ignorant. This is God's truth. So she's saying, like, it doesn't matter who you are. This is a community that we have. And the community has responsibilities to the community. So whoever you are in here, everyone has their role. And she's going to use this refrain to like to remind everyone what they should be doing. Um, so it says the same. Uh, <coughs> so that each individual is expected to consider his or her own position in relation to the ultimate truth that should be the focus of everyone's life. The foundation of the community was of primary importance, and that is clarified here for scholars, rulers, and warriors. Verse after verse counsels patience, justice, fair play, loyalty, righteousness, and forbearance. Harmony was the political objective, a goal which matched the harmony of the inner self with God. So this is like the, the, inner, the inner outer of the whole process uh, is going on there. Uh, she also obviously put a lot of emphasis on education and that education should be for everyone, regardless of gender, regardless of class, you know, political status, social economic status, whatever it might be. And that whenever someone comes into the religion, there's not like multiple classes of people inside of the religion. So you have new converts, you have people who don't know, people who don't know more, know less, so on and so forth. But everyone, once they come in, it uh, says that in this and other works she emphasizes that once a man or woman embraced Islam that person became her co-religionist and therefore one of the brethren or friends. Isma'u did not discriminate between people of different ethnic backgrounds but instead included them in her community. So once you're, you're in, you're in. Um, this is why you know, we have like this interesting thing sometimes where people never stop being converts. This is an interesting phenomenon to me. Like, yeah, someone maybe in the beginning they converted, but like at what point is someone no longer thought of that way? Like you're just part of the community now. You're not, and even even when the person just converts, you're still just part of the community, you know. And I've seen it sometimes where people like they never get past that. It'd be like twenty years later, and they just refer to themselves all the time like us new Muslims. We're still. I'm like new Muslim. You're twenty. You've been Muslim for twenty years. You're not really a new Muslim anymore. I mean, like, you've probably been Muslim longer than some of the kids in the room. You know what I mean? Like, there's 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds, 20-year-olds in the room. They've only been thinking for 10 years. So, actually, you've been Muslim longer than they have. Like, words... Huh? <laughs> you know, so they... It's, it's an interesting phenomenon. Um, even sometimes, like, a lot of times people ask us if we're doing programming for converts at the Majlis and stuff, you know? And... One of the things that, I mean, maybe we will eventually. I know some of the masajid have particular programming for converts and stuff like that. But my hope and my aspiration is that, like, 
the Sunday program is a program for converts just like it is for anyone else. Like it's a community space, you come and you meet people and the lecture will be such that everyone can understand it inshallah. And it's not like we don't have to make these distinctions all the time. Yeah, maybe you need some particular space to address some particular questions sometimes, right? Sure. But like we want, uh, and, and I think the greatest challenge on a community level often is, quite frankly, it's a cultural challenge more than it's anything else, right? Is that when you're a convert, you're coming from an American cultural background. And usually when you're going into Muslim community spaces, you're going into something else, you know, <laughs> or some sort of hybrid between various cultures and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, our hope is that although we respect and we love all kinds of things from various Muslim traditions and cultures and places and so on and so forth, our, our goal here is that the, the culture of this place is at least predominantly American in the end. Like that, that is the goal because we're in America, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, we're going to sit on the floor. That's okay. Sometimes, sometimes we'll sit on chairs. Sometimes people might eat whatever. We're not making a big deal out of that, but there's certain subtleties. Like, for example, Americans don't usually like really get into other people's business right away. It's kind of like an American thing. You don't really see that in other places <laughs> oftentimes. Like we used to meet people in certain Muslim countries, not to get too, you know, someone will get angry. But you meet someone, and in the first conversation that you just met them, they're like, okay, so how much rent are you paying for your place? And <laughs> how much income do you make in a year? And like, you've been married, you don't have any kids yet? You really should have kids, you know? You only have that many? Come on. Like, and there's no, like that's not really, and these are s subtle things that are hard to explain, right? But like, you don't, in American culture, you don't do that. And it's not like an issue of good or bad. It's just an issue of if you're raised here, that's what you're accustomed to. So if you start coming into like, and that applies to the Muslims too, by the way. Like Muslims who are raised here, that's what they're accustomed to. They're not accustomed to like, except in the masjid, they're accustomed to different things, right? Because they're used to being around different cultures and whatever. But in everyday life, they're not accustomed to those things. So like, how do you, what is it going to look like? And that's one of, one of the goals of, of the place is that, Again, we respect everything from everywhere else and we love it. And you hear me talking about Egypt all the time and this all the time and so on and so forth. And that's good. We should do that. But in the end, like, what does it look like to do it here? Right? So anyways, so converts, inshallah, are welcome all the time. If you need anything, we're at your service. Uh, I'm, I'm like a chameleon convert. Depending on how I dress and how I speak and which language I use, sometimes I'm a convert, sometimes I'm not, sometimes people think I am, whatever it is. So, at your service, inshallah. So she, uh, we're going back to Asma'u, Nana Asma'u. She didn't distinguish, discriminate between people of different ethnic backgrounds, but instead included them. And they're dealing with a lot of new converts, right? That's part of why these poems are there. And... You know, one of the things that I think is important to reflect about that is is that, yes, there's subtleties of like how Muslims generally do things or don't do things and so on and so forth, but the core teachings of the religion are not really actually that much. And if someone is really sincere and they really want to know like what is Islam about and how do I get to know what I should do and what I shouldn't do and so on, they can do that in a relatively short amount of time. Maybe getting it into your heart, really digesting it, it kind of like marinating a little bit, that's going to take some time. But the basic teachings are there. And that's what they were doing in these poems that she's teaching. She's giving them these poems that like, 
you know, you, you take the poem, you learn this poem, it's going to benefit you in that way. So, uh, one of the things that she notes here that I think is really interesting is this last paragraph. The collective character of the Muslim community depended upon each individual's appropriate fulfillment of his or her role. The duties of community are expressed in their broadest form. Asma'u's work focuses specifically on the importance of women as socializers. It compelled teachers to transmit and explain the poetic work, whose message in turn compels students to give of themselves as citizens for the social and spiritual betterment of their society. The education process promoted by Isma'u and her followers shows a deep understanding of community and the work needed to maintain it. That's the part, that's the sentence I think is interesting. Shows a deep uh, understanding of community and the work needed to maintain it. So again, she's dealing with different things. One of the poems that she wrote that's on the same line that we started with is called uh, the poem called A Prayer for Rain. So it was understood that like your local people have prayers and ceremonies and things that they're going to do when they're trying to get rain. And obviously we have a dua for that. We have dua for that. We have duas around that, prayer for that in our tradition. So she's like, she's going to write this poem that's going to give them a prayer for rain. And when they learn this poem, now, th now they've replaced it. They replaced what they used to use and they have something else. And you can use this and you're totally fine and calling on Allah to... Uh, and she even like gives them... Uh, in the poem she says like repent from using magic of doing these other shaman type things of gambling and beware of all of that and this is what you can use. So she, she's guiding them in that way. Radiallahu uh, anha. Um, uh, she says, as the, it's, it says, as the daughter of a man who spent his life trying to change society, Nana Asma'u was imbued with the spiritual ethos that constituted the foundation of the caliphate community. Her written works reflect that clearly. Her father, the Shah, who, like the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, whose life was the model he followed, spent years traveling in regions which were for the most part very un-Islamic. Provinces like Zamfara and the riverine areas bordering the Niger and at Ilu. Living conditions while traveling were not comfortable. The Shahu did not frequent the courts of the rulers, but lived in simple accommodations outside the towns. She was used to his preaching to ordinary people in the places where they congregated, the markets. Among his audiences would be pagans, brazen worshippers of stones and spirits who neither prayed nor fasted nor gave alms, and who blasphemed against Allah Almighty. She grew to appreciate his gentle manner, equitable approach to the masses, and immeasurable patience with those who required further explanation. <coughs> he preached about the requirements of the Sharia, the Sunnah of the Prophet them, about turning people from error to righteousness and the leaving of devilish innovation. So basically what he's saying is like they were committed to this thing and it wasn't, it was about the people, as we talked about last time. It wasn't about like having, you know, currying favor with people of power or hanging out with the wealthy and stuff like that. It was about how do we take the truth to these people and whatever conditions it takes to do that, we're going to do that. So they were very committed to their cause. Um... We talked about last time this idea of like um, compartmentalizing life, how you have parts of it that are Islamic and parts of it that are un-Islamic, even though the whole word doesn't even make sense. So, you know, I, I, I think I mentioned before that one of the things that I use to kind of consider terms is to try to translate them to Arabic and see if they make any sense. And like the word Islamic, when you try to translate it to Arabic, you come up with Islami which doesn't really mean anything like it's not outside of the last probably 50 years or something nobody the old usage of that term actually 
it goes back from the early generations of the Muslims after the time of the Prophet and it means something totally different than what people use it for now. That's uh, Imam Ibn Hassan al-Ash'ari of the uh, Aqidah. He, he had a work on that called Maqalat uh, al-Islamiyyin. Those are the Islamiyyin, are the people who attribute themselves to Islam even though they're not, basically. That was how he was using it. So like Dr. Jackson talks about that in Islam and the Black American, how like maybe that maybe people like the NOI can be part of this category. They're like people who attribute themselves to Islam, but they're not actually like technically speaking in in the mainstream of what it means to be a Muslim. So they're Islami. They kind of like call themselves. <laughs> they they claim it, but they're not actually it. So anyways, the point is these words don't really make sense: Islamic and non-Islamic, and so on and so forth. Um, but the splitting up of life like that is not the way that it's supposed to be, right? Like everything that we do, it's a matter of intention and how it's done. If it's done with a good intention, if it's done according to a way that's acceptable to the Prophet then that's part of Islam and that's part of our life. And that should encompass every area of life. That should encompass the way that I sleep, the way that I deal with people, the way that I talk to people, the way that I interact with elders, the way that I think about the work that I do, the way that I think about other people, so on and so forth, all of that is part of Islam. So the whole compartmentalizing thing is problematic. It says here that Asma'u um, understood and respected the aim of imitating the life of the Prophet and sought to follow such an example. She too spoke to people in their own languages. Her works reflected in both content and style a sensitivity for her audiences and always emphasized the spirit of community that she and her cohorts sought to mold. The community they endeavored to create was modeled on historical precedents of Muslim communities whose philo philosophical basis was spiritually grounded and ubiquitous. That's what the point is. This, this statement right here. Their philosophical basis was spiritually grounded and ubiquitous. Which means that their philosophy, their perspective on how they understand the world, what's going on in their head in terms of how they understand the world, how they process things, how they determine right and wrong, how they think about good and bad, so on and so forth, is all spiritually grounded. It's grounded in the teachings of the religion. It's not grounded in like everything else, and then afterwards you sprinkle a little bit of Islam on top, right? To try to make the cake halal. It's, it's the, the the cake is not. I mean, it's halal, but it's not like it's not right, even if you sprinkle some stuff on the top. Um, and that's really, I think, like the biggest challenge. And this is where we've missed out big time in our, in our modern predicament. Uh, mostly because, as I've said before, we took Islam that had three components. Islam, Iman, and Ihsan. It had the mind, it had the outward rulings, and it had the spirituality. And we diminished the whole thing, we reduced the whole thing to only outward rulings. And if the outward ruling is correct, then it's, then it's quote-unquote Islamic. But no, no, that's not what makes it deen. What deen is, is all three of them together. If all three of them are synergized together correctly, then this is what is deen. Meaning the, perspe the perspective in the mind has to be correct on it. The perspective in the heart has to be correct on it. And the action itself has to be correct. The actual physical action. That's what makes it like what Islam is actually about. So, you know, but when we... Uh, take out those elements then it becomes very dry it becomes very um, kind of like stagnant paralyzed it's really you feel like it's useless doesn't really have any strength to it it's just a bunch of do this and don't do that type thing oh it's do this and don't do that is fitting into 
a bigger picture of how the world is supposed to be, how we think about things, what's right, what's wrong, so on and so forth. So it's evident not only in the law and commerce, but in the smallest detail of a person's life. So again, it's, it's, this philosophical basis was spiritually grounded and ubiquitous. It was evident not only in law and commerce, so again, this issue of just the outward rules, not only in law and commerce, but in the smallest detail of a person's life. Asma'u explained through her works how to pray, heal, work, and converse, what to eat, and when to sleep. All this was couched in the framework of spirituality that aimed to create a community based on the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu <coughs> uh, Where did all you people come from? <laughs> you know? We were here at 6 o'clock and like nobody was here. We thought we were going to be eating cake by ourselves, left over from the wedding and like drinking tea and coffee and hanging out. And then all of a sudden the room is full. Alhamdulillah. Welcome. Welcome everyone. But then I like kind of lollygagged my way into the lesson and now time is running out. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's good to see everyone. <coughs> so the next chapter I'm just going to mention this really quickly the next chapter basically is on kind of like the poems that she wrote so it just talks about some of the themes that we already kind of mentioned um <coughs> That thing that one of the themes that comes up here is one that we talked about before that no one in the community pursued scholarship at the expense of daily obligations. So she married, had children. She did not engage in research and isolation. Like she, she was a scholar and she lived in her community and she did the things that she's supposed to do or needs to do in her daily life. So it says, uh, at the time that she was engaged in cataloging her father's works, she continued to be responsible for a household of several hundred people. That, that is actually the word It's not like I'm not reading it incorrectly A household of several hundred people Seeing to it that their daily needs For food, clothing, and shelter were met During this time her husband was the wazir He was often out traveling different places Doing different things And she had other things So she was responsible for all of this And she would have also been host To all the people who were coming To visit her husband To visit her family So just to host all these people as well and she was known for her ability to deal with um, disagreements and like br arbitrate problems and stuff like that, mediate issues. So she's doing all of these things all at the same time. And uh, scholarly women in her community were not abnormal. Uh, she says in one of her, it says, nevertheless, scholarly women were common in Asma'u's clan. Asma'u herself calculated that there were as many as a hundred. So just in like their little community, there's as many as a hundred women of, of learning and scholarship and so on. Um, so she'll take like, it, it talks about these different styles that she uses in her poems. And even sometimes were like, there were poems that her and her brother composed on the spot to each other, like as a battle's about to go down. Like her brother sends her a note, then she writes with a poem and he responds with a poem. Like it just shows that they were, they were that good and they were that knowledgeable and they were that talented in what they were doing that they could just compose it on the spot and, and put it out there. Um, and she had different you know, methods for that. If you're interested in it, you can read it because it's really detailed. Um, we had mentioned last time the issue of when her brother asked her to write a work on women and how she kind of like revamped it 
which is kind of cool. So uh, it says, her selective approach to the versification of Bello's work is a demonstration of her status and authority. In creating her own Sufi women poem, she did not merely translate her brother's work, but reshaped it to reflect a different emphasis on women's roles. Her poem incorporates the names of these ascetic women, omits admonitions, and emphasizes the pos positive aspects of their practical and pious work in the world. Um, so she changed it around, and she did her own thing. Uh, she wrote it also in multiple languages. <laughs> so it's amazing. Like She'd write one poem, and then write the same topic in another language, the same content in another language, so that it has multiple layers, it can reach more people, and so on. Um, her poetry demonstrates that she was strong-willed, engaged in her cause, and she was also sensitive to matters of grief and loss. Uh, she never wrote in isolation, but always was an activist whose writings were merely instruments in bringing her fellow citizens to a higher good. So, again, themes that we've already talked about. Uh, some of the famous works that she did were the one that she translated about her, from her father about how to run the state. But also she has a very famous work in the life of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. It says uh, that there was one of her father's students whose name was Muhammad Tukur. Uh, he wrote a, a book praising, or he wrote a poem praising the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And it's 1200 verses long, takes six hours to be chanted. So his, his poem takes six hours. If you were to read it, it's going to take you six hours to get through it, but it's going to cover the life of the Prophet And that inspired, uh, he wrote then a shorter one called Yearning for the Prophet which also tells of well-known happenings and so on. It's supposed to teach people about the life of the Prophet uh, But then what she did was she translated the shorter one to Hausa, which again was more uh, commonly spoken and understood by people. And it is more famous among Hausa-speaking women than any other in its genre, and it continues to have a public presence into the 21st century. Annually, at the time of the Prophet's birthday, crowds of women make a pilgrimage to the tomb of this, the author uh, that she summarized, 70 miles south of Sokoto, an event which passes peacefully because it is well organized. And they, they sing this poem as they go. For 150 years they've been singing this poem. Right? Uh, and everyone's going and they go on this pilgrimage, they sing the poem. And so again, these are means by which, you know, you're not, if, you know, sometimes we look at these things and are like, well, we don't need that because we have YouTube. You know, why do I need to know the poem? Because I can just go on YouTube and I can listen to it. Or why do I need to have this book because, or, or to memorize it because I can just have the book. One of the things to think about is like twofold. One of them is that if there are foundational things that you want to know about your religion so much so that they become part of you, then it's good to memorize them at some level. Even if you don't rote memorize them, you need to memorize them uh, non-rotely. It's not even a word. I'm just going to make it up right now. Meaning like it has to be ingested. I cannot, because my religion is meant to be lived. It cannot be lived if it's not part of me. That's why memorization was such a major portion of Muslim education. It wasn't because the people didn't believe in using their brain. You know, that's like the, the trope that everyone uses. They just memorized because they didn't like to think. Or it's just they didn't have any critical thinking. And so it's all kalam faldi. It's like the most ridiculous, empty speech ever. Yeah, in the beginning, you memorize it. Why? Because you're a Muslim. And I want to know who Allah is. So I'm going to memorize it so that it becomes part of me and it can never be taken away. No matter where I go, no matter what happens in life, 
That's why you have these slave memoirs in the United States. They spent like the person would be enslaved for 20, 30 years. And then afterwards they sit down and write a poem or they write like a little thing and it references verses from the Quran, it references is issues in law and so on and so forth. Then they've been forbidden from writing for 30 years. But they memorized it in their childhood. So it's never, it's, it's not going anywhere, right? So number one is that you want it to become part of you. Number two is that if you memorize it, nobody can take it from you. You're not dependent upon it anymore. It's, our, it's yours now. So if these women are like memorizing these poems that are giving them everything they need to know about the Prophet practically speaking, everything they need to know about their religion is in the poems. And they memorize the poems while they're cooking and they're doing different things and they're taking care of whatever. And they memorize and now it's like, well, so what do you, now, now you just live your life. You do what you're supposed to do because you have it all. You have what you need. So it's, it's actually a really amazing, if, if the goal is to live these things, then, uh, then, the, then the memorization is good. You know. Last section, I think. Yes, last section. A couple pages. Inshallah, bear with me. She says a certain number of women in the caliphate community, like their descendants in contemporary Sokoto and nearby towns, were teachers and writers. In the predominantly oral culture of the caliphate, teachers were effective in transmitting works through the spoken, chanted word. Repetition and, repetition and memorization of these popular poems resulted in their reaching a far wider audience than originally intended. As voices echoed beyond the open-air class area, and recitations passed well beyond the first listeners to the extended family and neighbors alike. So she created in doing this a cadre of, of literate, strong women who understood the religion, who can go out and teach wherever they need to teach. Uh, she, in her poems, when she's praising someone, she wrote a lot of poems praising people after they died. And she wasn't talking about like their power, their influence and stuff like that. She was talking about um, usually their asceticism, their, qu their qualities of character, so on. So she conveys, for example, when she's writing about her brother, um, and others, she, she focuses on their patience, their generosity, basically the things that make someone pious, not like other things that you get remembered for. And, um, you know, it teaches people that what matters is holding your tongue, what matters is helping people, what matters is aiding people, what matters is speaking out for what's against what's wrong, to forgive people, to pray, to have loyalty and sincerity. That the concern for the material, psychological, and sp spiritual welfare of the community was upon every individual. You know, in short, there was much that a woman not only could do but was obligated to do in the promotion of the good of the community and the good of her own soul. And of course, that applies to men too, right? Point is, it's not only like you can do all kinds of things. If your goal is to benefit people, it's all kinds of things you can do to benefit people. Why am I? Sighing. Why am I sighing? It's not only because you're falling asleep. It's because um, I feel like everything has turned into a business now. So like anyone who wants to do anything good, it has to be a business. Everything has turned into a business. Everything has turned into marketing. There's no like, for whatever reason, I'm not judging it. People are going to do whatever they're going to do to survive. But like the kind of like spirit of I'm going to do what I can for, for the community, for the people, 
to to build, to to grow, to be together, so on and so forth. It's it's all commodified now. So it's just really sad. Changes everything. Um, and I don't know. I don't know what the balance is in that because, like everyone's, you know, you, in order to be professional, you have to pay people. You have to do this. You have to do that. Of course, that's true. But like. How do we make decisions around that? I don't know. I think that's something we're really struggling with now. Because if you make certain like distinctions, then people will be like, well, that's discriminatory or whatever. Like, you're not being fair now. So what is fairness? Like, maybe someone, you, maybe two people do the same thing for the community. One of them you pay them, the other one you don't pay them. And one of them you're paying them because they don't have any other source of income. And the other one you're not paying them because they're, f they're financially stable. They don't actually need the money. And you look at it from the outside and it's like, it's not fair. You know, you paid that person, you should pay this person. Okay, but then like, what is it then? Is it just like a bunch of people doing business together? Or is it community? Or like, what is it? I don't know. I don't, I don't have the answer. I'm just thinking out loud with things that make me sigh in the middle of teaching a class. <laughs> Uh, growing up as she did during the jihad instilled in Asma'u an activist spirit that gave no quarter to elitist approaches to literary works. Okay, so she didn't like her poems were easy to understand. Here's the, here's the things you need to know. They're easy to understand. We're not going to make it super complicated and sophisticated and everything else. Just know what you need to know. Um, and, you know, she would do that. There's many scholarly pious women who said that. She would... Uh, we did that too, okay There's some interesting poems like about people who died As we mentioned before that she would Not only write poems about powerful people But also people who weren't like really So well known um, People who were like her sister-in-law Her neighbor, stuff like that um, She was just a good neighbor Anyone who would come to her She'd treat them with generosity Like usual um, things that you would expect people to do She would praise them for them And and again, like there's an absence of the elitism in that Like she praised the person who's popular and powerful And she praised the person who's unknown to a lot of people But they lived a good life and a decent life So she's going to write about them And in doing so, kind of like add them into the, the The chronicles, in a sense, of this community Um Alright, so this is the last sentence Asma'u was not isolated Nor was she ever a lone voice When she wrote, she addressed her contemporaries About shared problems In addition, her works demonstrate how she went about Organizing, educating, and reconciling the women of the caliphate To help her, she had the relatives and friends With whom she had grown up with And the activists she had recruited So, contrary to what many imagined to be the case Educated women did not enter Purda. <laughs> I don't even know how you say that uh, Disappearing into subordinate anonymity When the new Islamic state was established In the caliphate there existed a world of women's Islam Whose leaders held prestigious and powerful positions In the hierarchy of the caliphate A world which Asma'u's works reveal It was well organized and efficiently run It had clear objectives and a wide membership It recruited from all ethnic groups and all age levels its political objectives were the conversion of women to Islam, education within Islam, and the harnessing of their talents to the development of the state. The potency and power of the movement has been borne out by its continued existence to the present day. All of this contradicts the views of those who have talked of the men being Muslims and the women pagans, 
or women being on the periphery of the periphery of the Muslim world, or women silently subverting the Islamic rules which kept them in an inferior position. These are all quotes. Such perspective has contributed to negative stereotypes about Muslim women in which they are depicted as different from active, independent African women of other ethnic social political groups so solely because of religious constraints. Those views derive from a paucity of women's voices in recorded history. The corpus of Asma'u's works can redress this situation, providing first-hand testimony to the active necessary participation of women in caliphate society. May Allah be pleased with her and her family and those who came after them. Allahumma ameen. Any questions or comments or things that people want to share? Observations? Hatred you'd like to spew in my direction? Ibrahim. <laughs> His hand went up before that last sentence, the last statement. 